this is the moment we've been waiting for all week. I'm going to sit down right now with none other than the great Craig Button. Craig, how are you doing this evening? I am very, very good. And how are you? You know what? I'm not too bad all the way on the East Coast. But, uh, you know, the weather's uh, being nice and nice fall weather out here in Nova Scotia. How about yourself? Well, I'm in Calgary. And it, and, and it snowed last night. So <laughs> I'm looking out at snow. But the beautiful thing about Calgary... And there's many beautiful things, just like there is right across the country and all the communities and cities. Is that by this coming weekend, it's going to be about 12, 13 degrees, and all the snow will be melted, and you know, and we'll be riding our bikes around. So, you know, it's just just the way it works out here. That's just it. Well, when I moved to uh, Nova Scotia in 2003, they told me it's the province with four seasons in a day. You can go from ice cold in the morning, spring, later on, then summer, and then right back into fall. So. I know exactly what you're talking about. I want to say right now, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us and talk about everything that's going on in Leafland. And as you probably know, you're in it every day. The Leafs uh, fan base is going crazy right now. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it speaks to a couple of things. And, and, and I think that it's all good, you know, in the sense of, you know, you, got, you, you have this unbelievable, uh, passionate fan base. And, you know, they, they love their Leafs, and, and they're going to be as high as the sky with the ups. And unfortunately, when they're not performing near that level, they're going to be uh, disappointed, angry, you know, upset, and a little bit down about everything. And, you know, I, and, so, and, and so that's what happens when you play not only, in, not only in a market that is arguably the best in the, in the world when it comes to hockey, but with that passionate fan base. So I, I think that, you know, you, you, you understand it and you understand what the expectations are, but it's not so much, nobody wants to see their team lose. And no. the Toronto Maple Leafs don't want to lose, but I think it's more the way they're playing and, and the manner that they're playing and in, in the ups because the ups aren't just like game to game or week to week. The ups are from period to period. They're, they're from shift to shift, you know, and, and you start to, you start to get that type of uncertain and uh, uneven play. Well, I'll tell you what, that, that messes with the emotions of the fans and, and, and that's understandable. So, you know, for, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, and I, you know, we, we, we chatted, we exchanged some notes a couple of weeks ago. I, I said, I'm not panicked, but, but, there's concern there and there should be because yeah. this isn't just at the beginning of the 2019, 20 season. It's it, what's been going on has been happening for uh, almost a year now. And, you know, 60 games, we're closing in on 60 games from Christmas to this point on. And, you know, people say, well, they have new players. Well, let me just see. Last time I looked, Anderson, Riley, Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares, Kapanen, Janssen, they were all there last year. <laughs> no, so, most of the core pieces are still there. You're, you're correct. But, I mean, yeah. you did bring in guys like, you look at a Kerfoot, you look at a Barry. I mean, Barry, if you look across the spectrum, all the guys who do all the fancy analytics talk, you know, Barry is not being used in the way he should be used. And it's almost reminding me of what they did to Morgan Riley at one point when Babcock wanted Morgan Riley to be more astute defensively opposed to being the offensive guy he's known for. And you only have Barry for... Probably one year, because you're not going to resign both him and Muzzin if you get to resign either of them, depending how this year goes. So, I mean, I'm wondering what you think about that. Like, you, you have these new players, and some of these guys may be miscast in what they're, what they're doing right now. 
Yeah, I mean, like, like I, like I understand that uh, you know Tyson is come, he's got new surroundings, but but there's an adjustment period, and you, you know, with, with, with there's an adjustment period for Tyson to the to the style of play. There's an adjustment period uh, for Tyson to the players he he's playing with and understanding you know their patterns and the players playing with Tyson. But you, you, you know, like it, it, it's great to talk about who he should be playing with or who he shouldn't be playing with, right? You know, like so, where would you play him? Like, would you do, do you want Morgan Riley to play with Tyson Berry? And 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 that's that's all well and dandy, and, and maybe that, that's something that could happen. And but then what do you do? And then keep in mind that with Dermot out, and you, you're basically trying out a 19 year old defenseman. Uh, a defenseman who played 11 games last year in Justin Hall, and and Marinson, who's who's been uh, anything but a sure uh, NHL player. So so you know we we look at one part of it, but coaches have to look at the whole part of it. They have to look at the entirety of it and go, okay, that's great. I play these guys here. I play those guys there. Now what happens? You know, if we get a power play and those two guys are coming off the ice, who do I put on the power play? Like mm-hmm. you know, and these are the things that the coaches are thinking about all the time. And, you know, then defensively, you know, what happens if, if, if one of those guys, you know, what happens if Muzzin gets a penalty? Then who do I use on the penalty kill? And what's happening after that? There, I, I've said this many a times. A lot of people, in fact, vast majority of people, vast number of people think they can coach. I can guarantee you this. You put somebody behind the bench, they wouldn't last five seconds or five minutes, sorry, five minutes. Their head would be spinning so fast because it's coming at you so bloody fast, and the things you got to be thinking about. So, well, I get the, well, I get the, uh, what I would call, okay, what might be a, a framework in which you can use them. You better be careful about being hard and fast with those assessments, anybody, because the coaches have to be thinking about the before, the during, and the after. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking about that. Well, the only reason why I say maybe Tyson Berry is being a little bit miscast is I know Morgan Riley's doing well point-wise, but on the power play, for whatever reason, his shot or whatever he's doing is not the same as last year. And I'm wondering, maybe to alleviate some of that, put Tyson Berry in Riley's spot and maybe Riley to the other spot because you know Riley knows how to gel with some more of these guys than Tyson Berry does. And that may give Berry that opportunity on the power play to gain a little bit of confidence offensive-wise because we, you know he hasn't scored this year and that's this is his longest drought period now so maybe giving him that opportunity to get his feet wet offensively might just be the confidence boots he needs to help other aspects of his game as we know what happened to him to the Montreal Canadiens on the weekend where he had the blunders you know it's all about confidence I've heard you say it numerous times and and we spoke about Marinson just a moment ago that's a guy who unfortunately looks like when the puck touches a stick it's a pure grenade and it's because of everything around him. It's not the coaching staff didn't trust him or this didn't trust him or the fans don't trust him. And he hears it from every angle. You know, I'm just wondering confidence-wise for Barry anyways, do you give him that opportunity to build himself up a little bit and then even it out afterwards? Well, well yeah, yeah like, uh, like I think coaches, like I, I mean, coaches are always trying to put players in the positions to where they can maximize their abilities and, you know, feel feel that they're producing to the level to, to, to what not only not only what others expect of them, but what high performing players expect of themselves. But, you know, so 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 let's factor in something else. They have they have Paul McFarlane. 
yep. a, a new a new guy working with the power play. And if you and we all recall what was going on during the preseason. Oh, love this setup. Love this setup. Love how Matthews is on one side and Marner's on the other side, and how they're going to work it and everything. And you know, people, oh, they'll be top five in the league. I mean, they were eighth last year on the power play. I mean, I know they fell off after, but I mean, it's not like their power play was, was what happened to their power plays. It got stagnant. It didn't change because other people adjusted to them. So again, how do you want to, how do you want to, when you, when you put Matthews and Marner on, or Matthews and Tavares uh, on the power play together. Okay. A coach has to be thinking, okay, what's the other coach going to be doing? Because I'm just going to use a, an example. If, 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 if I have those guys out at the wrong time and now the other team comes out and let's just say it's Washington you're playing or they're playing Tuesday and I get stuck and I got to come out with Kerfoot against Backstrom or Kuznetsov. Yeah. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> but there's a question I want to ask you then where you have your two big dogs, Matthew and Tavares when Tavares is obviously healthy on that number one power play unit. Would you do that or would you split them up and use them equally between the two power play units and kind of spread the wealth around instead of loading it up? Just for the situation you're talking about now, where you'd have one of them to be able to go up against the team's best, because you know that's what they're going to put out right after the power play, especially if the Leafs got that big boy lineup out there. Well, the other thing is, is you is you're also trying to score. So you you, you know you're you're looking and you're going, okay, what's what, what's the situation in the game? Okay, yeah. is this a, is this a situation where we can take advantage and get a lead? Can we get a two goal lead? Are we down by a goal and get back into the game? So, you know, like one of the things that I've always felt, you know what, everybody's looking for balance. Everybody wants balance throughout their lineup. And, 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 and that's something that everybody strives for. Unfortunately, it works really well in theory. And in practice, you can't, it, it's really difficult to do it. So when you're trying to do and when you're trying to, when you're trying to manage, you know, the, the situations and where the players fit into them, I mean, these are the things, these are all the combinations and permutations that coaches are thinking about. Now, just quickly back to Tyson Berry. You know what? You know, for it'll be interesting to see what happens now with Dermott coming back in the lineup. Because yeah. that should that should change things somewhat. You know, they've had Andreas Janssen in front of the net on the power play. It'll be interesting to see what happens when Zach Hyman comes back and how they and how they mix and match and, and what they do. So, you know, early on in the season, and when I say early on, we're, we're thir- the Leafs are 13 games in, in, into their season, and, and the, the, there's some unevenness to their play. And we can talk about how do you get Tyson Berry going. Well, I, I can guarantee you this. The coaches are trying to think about how to get Tyson Berry going, and they're trying to think about putting him in into different situations. So the points made are all good. There's nothing, there's nothing negative about the points being made. But you're trying to massage it, and you're trying to manipulate it where you don't leave yourself vulnerable. And, and coaches, and, and, and this is what makes them so good, and it's also what can madden the fan base, is that they don't want to put themselves or their team in positions of vulnerability. And whether you call that, geez, you know, you know, open it up a little bit. Coaches, just they're not wired like that. And, you know, maybe at some point in time in the future, it'll change a little bit. But that's how they're wired because they're not just thinking about how to score. They're also thinking how not to be vulnerable. So, you know, all these things go on. And, yes, it's the strength of the coach. And, yes, it creates some maddening scenarios uh, for the fan base. But, you know, all in all, you know, you you, you have to – I would wait an, a, another eight 
games or whatnot and see what, what he's going to do when he's got Dermott and Hyman back in the lineup and, and, and Tavares comes back in the lineup. Because right now when you lose key players and you, you have and your pot's working, it becomes difficult to, to kind of let the horses run. Though it is difficult to let the horses run. With Dermott coming back, there's a, a few things that you mentioned, so we're going to scratch all these itches right here. With Dermott coming into the lineup, who do you see personally coming out of the lineup to let Dermott go in? Is it going to be Hall? Is it going to be goodbye Marinson? Like they, they do have to make roster decisions here as well. Who is staying and who do you believe is going? Well, I'll answer the question. I, I think Justin Hall has earned the right to stay in the lineup. And so, so not only is he earned the right to stay in the lineup, I think that he's also fits the uh, fits how Mike Babcock wants his defense pairs to look. He wants a left-right balance. So now you have Hall, who who has played played strong, and you have CC, and you have Barry, and then you have Riley, and you have Muzzin, and you have Dermot. So to me, uh, and I don't just default to the left-right, but I think that Hall has 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 earned the right to stay in the lineup. And to play with Dermot. And I would start Dermot down the lineup. That's right where I would start him. And, and let him work his way in and let him get comfortable up to the pace, you know. It's 13 games in, and, and I know he's ready and chomping at the bit, but everybody else has got a head start on him. So, he, you know, I think that they can afford to, to let him move in. But there's no question with Dermot in the lineup, it's going to help them. But that's the way I would look at it. Well, I've been preaching all season long through this podcast and on Twitter Justin Hall seems to be making strides and doing the small things you want a defenseman to do each and every game. Like boxing out players, you know, getting proper position, using his stick, clearing the puck. Just the little things that coaches look for for a guy to do. He seems to be on top of those things and getting them taken care of. And he's not flashy with it, but with a guy like him, you don't want him to be flashy. You have other guys for that. So I agree with you. Justin Hall would be the guy that I would pick as well. And I also agree with you that Travis Dermott should be started on the bottom pair and have his minutes you know, raised as he goes on. We all seen last year what happened with William Nylander. You know, he came back to the lineup, and he wasn't ready. You know, No matter what anybody says, his skating wasn't up to par with everybody else, and you know, the flow of the game, it's not there. So, yeah, you're right. Getting him into the game is the best part, and getting him going. And I have the same argument that I've been saying to people that Zach Hyman should be the same way. I don't think you should start him right up there with Marner and Tavares if Tavares comes back. Um, I think that Zach Hyman should also be maybe third or fourth line, get his feet wet, get rolling, and then increase his minutes with his line mates as it goes on. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's what you're trying to do uh, uh, and, and go from there. No doubt. You, know, you try to, you know, you, like, you know, but th- that being said, you know, you're trying to find, you know, Will, Will Hyman, maybe it'll take a little bit more time to get Hyman up to speed. The thing about Hyman is, I'm not so sure he needs, you know, to get up to speed. You know, you got Tavares and you got and you got Marner. They're both pretty good players, and in fact, they're really good players. So I think that by by uh, by by being able to, to make sure that he's healthy and ready to go, uh, that he'll be able to that he'll be able to maybe step in a little bit. And it's a little bit easier to, to step in on the wing than it is uh, on defense. Well. The thing I want to know about Hyman is obviously we've missed him. It's it's apparent. You know, you look at guys like uh, even Soup or you look at uh, Trevor Moore. Those guys are heart and soul kind of guys. They grind it out. They get the puck. They do all the little things that we were just talking about, like Justin Hall. But I'm wondering with Zach Hyman, 
This team is begging right now for a guy to answer the bell when someone gets stacked or answer the bell when things happen. You don't necessarily need to fight, but just someone to stand there and say, no, no, we're not going to take that. You know, you're not going to run my goaltender. You're not going to drive in the net like that. You're not going to deck Austin Matthews or Tyson Berry. I'm wondering, especially as Leafs Nation, are we going to be expecting way too much at a Hyman when he does return to this lineup? And are the Maple Leafs, I know they temper expectations, but are they going to be looking for that kind of response at a Hyman as well? Because that's the guy he is. You know, he's a lunch pail guy, you know, hard worker. He'll do anything for his teammates. I'm wondering if expectations might be a little out of whack when he does step in. You know, we're, I mean, we're on a philosophical discussion here. And, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, you know how, how players respond or how a team responds, you know, it, it, it's always interesting. So I, I, don't think there's a, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. And, and, and I'll share with you something that when I worked for Bob Ganey with the Dallas Stars, that Bob Ganey talked about. Now the, now the game has shifted. We know the game has shifted. We also know that the, the, the players coming into the game – haven't grown up in the, with, with the same type of mentality. So, so we have to factor that in as well. So when, when I say that, but what Bob always uh, emphasized to me, he goes, we may not think that toughness or that element is important, but if the players feel that it's necessary for them and it's important for them, then you better understand that the players are the ones out there on the ice. They're out there by on that, on that 200 by 85, and they're the ones now – that if it makes them feel more comfortable and it makes them feel a little bit better about how they're going to proceed and, you know, how, whatever you want to do and answer the bell, stand up for them, whatever it is, then you better not dismiss it out of hand. And, and, and you know what? I always thought that that was a really good point. Like, I mean, and we know the game has changed and we got to re- recognize that, but we also, and the players have changed, but that's something to consider. But he, here to me is the biggest, biggest thing you have to do. And, and this is what, and, and I'll give you another example when we were when I was with the Dallas Stars. We played the San Jose Sharks in the playoffs one year. And we knew that we were way better than them. And we knew that they were going to come and they were going to they were going to try to do everything they they could to take uh, a piece of uh, uh, get their pound of flesh out of us. And how we prepared our team beforehand was simply this way. We told them, here's what's going to happen. You better be ready for it. But here's what you're going to signal. You're going to signal that when you knock me down, I am going to get up and I'm going to give you two supercharged shifts. Not one, two. And we're going to discourage them in a different way. That they're going to come at us and they're going to knock, if they want to knock us down, guess what? You're, you're just, you're, you got a tiger by the tail. And years later, Kelly Rudy, who was on that team, I got talking to him about that. He said it was unbelievable. The players were getting frustrated because the, the, that's how we responded. Daryl Sutter kept telling the players, keep going. They said, we are. It's not making a difference. And it became a whole big hullabaloo. We ended up winning. So ultimately, you know what Austin Matthews has to do when he gets drilled? Get up and stand up. up. And dust himself off and tell him, oh, yeah, you, you want to do that? Well, here's what you got to deal with. And ultimately, every single player has that has that ability. Every single player has that ability. Yep. So you know what? So it, it can be twofold. I give you two sides of it, right, and everything, and so that's okay. But you, you, you get hit, and you want to just kind of shrivel and shrink up? I'm not suggesting Matthews did that. I'm not suggesting anybody did that. But you you, you, you got to put it, you got to instill into the minds of the players, listen, that's okay. It's part of the game. If it's a clean hit, 
then get up and get going. Get yeah. up and get after it. Get up and show Brendan Dillon. Oh boy, you don't know what you just did here. But that's what I mean with Austin Matthews. You know, it was a debate on Saturday night. It seems like some games he's almost pedestrian-like. And I'm not saying the effort isn't there. I'm not saying he's not trying. That's not where I'm going with it. But it just, for whatever reason, you want Austin Matthews to be the guy that everybody said he was when he was drafted. And I know what his point totals are this year. You know, he's a point-per-game player right now as we speak for the Toronto Maple Leafs. 13 points, 13 games. But you're looking for this guy to take this team on his back and basically charge down the ice. Do everything, you know, that you want him to do. He doesn't have to do it, you know, 100% every game. But he needs to have those moments in the game, like you just said, where Brendan Dillon decks him. Oh, you don't know what you just did. I don't need to hit you back. But I will take that puck and I'll show you what I can do with it. And you're not going to do anything about it. Kind of like um, if you look at uh, maybe Matt Sundin. They showed him a lot over the weekend. You know, when things happened to him, he would bear down on that stick and you weren't getting him off of it. And he'd drive that backhander into the net. And that's something I want to see out of Matthews. I want to see that game in and game out just a little bit more. And I don't know what it is. You talked, you know, when we spoke and exchanged notes a couple weeks ago, you know, about the system. Maybe it's the system that's having a problem here. And it's, you know, maybe not the players. But I don't know what it is with Austin Matthews. It doesn't seem like, I don't want to go to the effort word, but it just doesn't seem like he gives a damn sometimes. Or maybe he's tuning out the coach. Or maybe he's, I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? I, I know you know where I'm going with this. It's just... What is going on with the situation with the players? There's way too much talent to look the way they do. There is, but but also keep in mind that it's an immature talent. You know, I I, I, I lived in I lived in Michigan for twelve years, and I watched Steve Eiserman evolve and evolve, and the team evolve, and the criticism Steve Eiserman won. Steve Eiserman won the Stanley Cup when he was thirty-two years of age, and believe it or not. It's hard for people to believe it now, but there was lots of questions about could you win with Steve Eisman? And it's the same questions we heard about could you win with Alexander Ovechkin? And, you know, so, I mean, when I say that it's an immature, I mean, winning in the National Hockey League is hard. It's really, really hard. And understand, players want to win. Players are competitive. Players, you know, they're, they're not sitting there not wanting to compete or not wanting to win. But understanding you know, how to, how to, how to keep a, a, a game level and how to keep your game, you know, even when things aren't going well, how are you going to make an impact? I, I, listen, that's where I think Marner's at. I think that's where Matthews is at. I think Morgan Riley's there. I think that Austin Matthews is there. And, and that's normal. And, 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 and that's just part and parcel of, of, of growth. And Mike Babcock's talked about that. Now, you know, the other, the, other, the other challenge here is, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's a reality. And, and this is another part of the maturity part of it, and, and, and players understanding it. So, Austin Matthews, terrific three years coming into the league as a rookie. Well, guess what? He's not a rookie anymore, and he's making $11.6 million. And Mitch Marner's not a rookie anymore, and he's making $10.9 million. Yep. So, with those, with those salaries and with that level of, of compensation, there's also a level of expectation. And the level of expectation is damn high. And, you know, because it also impacts your team. When, when so much dollars is going to those players, it also goes to, to those players to have to do everything they can every single game because you, you've had to forego the, the other types of players because you put money into them willingly. There's not, not, there's not a negative about that. 
but the players have to understand that as well. So they're not different, and, and it's and, and you know we can talk about whether the expectation of the contract. The players have to realize that, and that's maturity. And you know when we talk about Austin Matthews, and we know that he's a heck of a talent. We know that he's a really, like an, ex, an excellent goal scorer. But as as, as an all around complete player, guess what? He's, he's far off from that. He's got a lot. He's got a lot of growth there. But I will remind you this. Okay, so you talk about from the East Coast. Nathan McKinnon, okay, who was the first overall pick, it wasn't until his fifth year that he got that all sorted out. No, that's true. He was slow. They, they were, there, was, there was rumblings that he was going to be a bust because of the way he was yeah, well, playing and, and sputtering. Exactly, right? So, like, you know, we, we all want these players to hit, hit a point. So I bring up Eisenman. I bring up, I bring up uh, McKinnon, right? I mean, McKinnon's a superstar. Yeah. He's, an, he's a full-blown, and you watch him play now, and it's like, He's just like every like he, he just impacts the game, and I mean he was runner up for the MVP a couple of years ago, and he was right there again last year. I mean he is a super, but it wasn't until his fifth year. So I'm not sitting here saying that Austin Matthews that we just got to wait and we give him a free pass. When you're making 11.6 million dollars, guess what? The expectation is every single night, all the time, and that's and and, and that's how you handle it, how you deal with it is something he's got to do because you know we. Where the team is at, with the money they've put in to their, call it the big four forwards, right? It's 40 million bucks. Well, guess what? You only have so much money to go around for other players. So if you're not pulling your weight, it becomes a lot harder for others to, to support the to support the cost. Definitely. Well, something you touched on just a, a couple of seconds ago was basically the attitude and stuff like that. The game against the Montreal Canadiens, where they were leading that game 4-1 to one and ended up losing 6-5. Whatever reason, I don't know what happened to that team. When they were up and they scored and they were 4-1, it was like there was no bad times. But as soon as a little bit, and this may be speaking to the growth you're talking about, a little bit of doubt started to creep in when they got the second goal in Montreal and the third. Then they tied it. The body language on the bench. And it's been this way in any game they've been down. It's not an upbeat bench. It's not, okay guys, we got to get this going. Let's figure it out. It's a somber bench. They're looking down. They look dejected. And there was a picture put up. It was the, the Leafs during the Kessel era beside the Leafs in that game against Montreal. And it looked the exact same. The slumped over the board's body language. The looking down. The bewildered looks on their faces. How do teams and how do coaches get their teams to get out of that? Well, I mean, so, so there's a lot there, a lot to chew on there. So we'll try to take little bites. Number one, and I've said this before, we're, we're, we're on to 58 games since last Christmas. Yep. So when, when, the, when the same things keep wearing their head, well, then it impacts the players too. So now they start to, they start to, you know, tighten up, right? Like, you know, and they start to, oh God, here we go again. Oh God, here we go again. Oh boy, here we go again. So like, you know, how, how you work through that confidence and how you work through those moments to, to, to get your team settled in and, and say, hey, listen, this is what we got to do. You know, that, that's no easy task. So I think the, the players are trying to talk about it. The coaches are trying to remind them of it. But you know what? That's a reality. When you, like, It's not like it happened once and you just go, okay, we can forget it. It's happened lots. So, so that's number one. Number two... And, and, and if you go and you bring up the Montreal game, so 
why don't we go back to the Montreal game and why don't we figure why don't you ask yourself two of the key goals in that game that got Montreal in, in, into, a, in, into a position. One was the one got them back into the game, right? Yep. And one and one got them the lead. And it was both the same thing. It was the way they play. One, they tried to make the stretch pass. It was four one. Like, okay, great. You want to keep making a stretch pass? You want to keep playing that way? I call it situational hockey. You're up four one. Just play. Don't even let them have a sniff. But no, you want to keep playing with the stretch pass. Well, now you have an icing. They get a free face-off. They get to pick the side. Boom. It's 4-2. Yep. Then, what happens again? It's 4-4 after the Petri goal. What do they do? Another icing. Right? What happens? Deneau comes out on the ice. They got the guy on the wrong side. And they score again. Like, situational hockey requires that you understand that we're going to play a certain way. The Detroit Red Wings in the 90s, in the mid-90s into the early 2000s, under Scotty Bowman, They'd get a 4-1 lead. You could forget about it. You could forget about it. You might not even touch the puck, let alone get another goal. And they just locked you down, and they just played the game, and they said, this is the way we're playing. If you want to push us out of our game, have at it. But we're not going to create our own problems. The Toronto Maple Leafs create a lot of their own problems by by the way they play, by the way they, they, they play their system. And and that's that's both on player and on coach. Yep. And I, 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 haven't, I haven't beat around the bush in this in any way. Their defensive zone play is atrocious. Oh, it's and scary. I, I, can, I can tell you this right now. Okay, There's not a team in this league that plays against the Toronto Maple Leafs that believes that when they're behind in a game that they can't come back because they know the Toronto Maple Leafs defense is terrible. And they know they're de- when I say their defense, their defensive play is terrible in their own zone. They know they can grind the Toronto Maple Leafs. They know they can get inside position. They understand all of that. And when, when, when other teams now continuously are able to go in and say, we're never out of a game against Toronto, well, it's up to Toronto to change that. It's up to Toronto to change the way they're going to focus and the way they're going to play. And to me, they haven't shown any signs of that. And until they do, they're going to still have the same problems. Well, talking about that, you know, the same problems, it's just like we just talked about with Justin Hall. What is making him successful and what is keeping him in the lineup? It is simple, small plays. When you have the four-one lead, you don't. You shouldn't need to stretch pass. You shouldn't need to be fancy. You should be swallowing the puck up and, like you said, making it so the other team can't touch it. Just doing all of the little things, and that's. I do these little videos before each game, and that's one thing I preach: is the Maple Leafs need to make sure they do all of the small things right, because other teams, like you just said, are feasting on the fact that they are making these mistakes. And teams know that they're going to make these mistakes. Teams know they're going to do that long stretch pass. Teams know that they're going to ice the puck. And they're setting up for it. And the Maple Leafs have zero answer for it. And everybody's saying, oh, Dermot coming back and Hyman coming back. It's going to make everything roses. It's To me, it's not. And unfortunately, I really am starting to believe that it is falling to the coaching staff to figure it out more so and maybe deploy something different. We all know last year and the year before, the Maple Leafs went on that dry spell, so to speak, where they played boring hockey. Babcock had them going, blazing guns, and then all of a sudden it became the shut-it-down, boring games. Kind of like almost like the San Jose game, so to speak. But he made them play that way. And I don't understand why they can't 
mix that together with the high power offense and then turn it back. And maybe like you said, it has to do with growth and maturity. But I also think this some of these players on this team, if Babcock and Matthews have to meet every summer to decompress their situation, there must be something more that we don't know about, obviously. But I'm wondering if players are starting to tune out the Babcock message and has he got the ball so far and someone else now has to run it the rest of the way. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's a it's a fair question, and considering the way they've played, I think that it's one that you know, yeah, you, you're again. We go back to the spotlight that you're in playing in Toronto, the expectations you have in Toronto, and you know what? That, that, that's just part and parcel of being the highest paid coach in the league and in, in, in a passionate hockey market, and you know, and, and that's what you have to that's what you have to take. So, you know, I, I don't know if you're a Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> no, unfortunately. Most people hearing this are going to scream, but I am a New England Patriots fan, and before Brady was a quarterback, so it wasn't a bandwagon so jump. So. And so am I, so am I, so am I, just so you know. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, I'm a Patriots fan too. So the reason I ask is, you know what, the, the, the first thing that, that Bowman or the, that Belichick preaches is don't beat yourself, right? Yep. So you listen to Freddie Kitchens after the game, I don't coach penalties. Well, guess what, okay? It's something that's reared its head time and time and time again. You might not be coaching penalties, but somewhere along the line, they're being tolerated. Yep. And, or somewhere along the line, you're not eliminating the things that cause these guys to take these penalties. So, and, and, and again, you can't just say, I don't coach penalties. We know you don't coach penalties. I know that Mike Babcock doesn't coach blowing 4-1 leads. I know that Mike Babcock isn't trying to give up uh, prime position. But he's got to take a long, strong, long examination of... What are the things that he's asking his team to do that aren't effective? And you got to make a change. I mean, we talked we talked about the power play. So they had a good power play last year for a stretch, and then everybody caught on to it. And I heard the same things last year at the beginning of the year and even through six weeks of the season. Oh, this power play, oh, my God, you can't stop it. You better not take a penalty against the Leafs. Heard the same thing after the Guess what? The power plays, the teams adjust. And if you're not adjusting and you're not making the – uh, the, the moves to counteract what other teams are doing, I guess I'll tell you right now, you're going to leave yourself very vulnerable. And I think that's what the Leafs have done. And I think they've done it to a great extent. And I think that's where Mike Babcock and the coaching staff have to have to have a, have a really close examination of what they're doing that can change. Well, there's lots that can change, obviously. And it, again, it bleeds into personnel. It bleeds into systems. For whatever reason, the things they're doing on the power play right now aren't working. Why? Because teams have wisened up to it and they understand. Also, we keep talking about the the preseason and how the power play was lights out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a preseason. You are not playing against a full complement of any team in the preseason. So if your number one power play unit is together in the preseason, you're there fine-tuning it, and it's going to look good for that reason. But now going into the season... Teams are game planning for this. Teams are understanding that Matthews is going to get the one-timer. And I hear a lot of people say, well, you know what? When Ovechkin's on the power play and he bears down on the one-timer, he gets it all the time. Well, no, he doesn't. He gets it a lot of the time, but not every time. You know, and Matthews is just learning this new position. Same thing with Marner. But teams are understanding they're going to do that cross pass and they're going to try to wham it in the net every time. I just think, like you said, they need to... They need to have a fresh set of eyes, in my opinion. Some, something needs to change. Someone needs to step in and say something or do something. 
Um, I don't know if it's a player just standing up and saying, hey, this isn't working. We need to look at this. I know they probably do, but it just, it like I go back to it again. It's like someone's turned the volume down on Babcock and nobody's listening because it just seems that way. And I hear a lot of people say that Sheldon Keefe may be the heir apparent. And if you look at it, he has his fingerprints all over this Toronto Maple Leafs roster. And guys like Dermott and Hyman, Janssen, Kapanen, Nylander, he's built some of these guys and brought them in. And with some of these guys, he's won with them. So down in the AHL. So I'm wondering if Keefe may be the guy you throw to the Wolves this year and let him get these guys to where they need to be and see what you have in Sheldon Keefe. Because you obviously don't make him the highest paid AHL coach for no reason. Obviously, we've heard the rumblings from last year at the end of the season. Apparently, from what I've been told, Dubas went and asked to have Mike Babcock fired and was told no. So I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I've, I've heard it numerous times on a bunch of other podcasts that have a little more stature than we do. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on Sheldon Keefe and then obviously what your thoughts are on that situation there and if there's any friction between Babcock and, and uh, Kyle Dubas. There's always going to be friction between coach and general manager. It's natural, it's normal, and it's healthy. You want that. You don't want uh, everything to be uh, – it, it has to be that way. You know, the, the general manager is thinking about longer term and, you know, what players can fit. The coach is thinking, geez, I don't have this. This is what I need. And, and, and that's normal. And, and, and you – but like any healthy relationship, you're going to have friction. And then you try to work through it. Now, for me, I, I have no idea – uh, about I don't deal in rumor, I don't deal in conjecture, so I have no idea about what what Kyle did or what Kyle didn't do. No idea on this. So, and I, and I am saying that like I think Mike Babcock has has done a lot of good things in this league, and I said take, take, you got to go through a, a close examination of what he can do better. He has to do that and and, and be encouraged to do that and, and go through it. And, and what can we do to adjust and, and make different kind of maneuvers that can give us a better chance to win. So that's not about changing the coach. Now, as it, as it, as it relates to Sheldon Keefe, and I really like Sheldon Keefe, and I've liked Sheldon Keefe since he was in Pembroke and, and, and the success that he's had and, and everything he's doing. I think that if you're looking at a team, and I just talked about immaturity, and an immature team with an immature general manager, and even Brendan Shanahan has no experience winning as a president and everything that goes with it. I think the last thing you need is an immature coach. And, and understand, I'm not using immature in a negative way. I'm talking about who's, uh, who's going to be able to provide... You know, we say Mike Babcock can't do it, and he's had all the success dealing with top players and winning a Stanley Cup and winning gold medals. Now we're going to ask Sheldon Keefe to come in it? Like, I don't think it's fair to Sheldon Keefe. So maybe that's the way they want to go. I think if they, if, if they, if they ever wanted to do that, I think it'd be a mistake. Definitely. Well, no, that's an honest answer. And that's something that a lot of people want to hear, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of people are saying Sheldon Keefe is the heir apparent. Um, myself, I'd like to see Sheldon Keefe get the opportunity. Maybe not this season, but it all depends on what happens. Something I wanted to ask you, though. <clears throat> Pardon me. You were speaking about, um, you know, the players realizing, you know, that Montreal game. Okay, this is something we've gone through. Okay, here we go again. Same problem. I'm wondering if the same feelings, you know, creep into a player's head. You're going down the season, down the line. Yet again, it's Boston 2, you 3, 
And then you're going to play Boston again in the playoffs where a lot of pundits said Mike Babcock was outcoached by Cassidy last year. Does that weigh on players as well? Just like you said for, you know, the, the games now where they go down, they face the adversity, this and that. Do those feelings or do you feel, clean the slate and just say, you know what, new, new playoff series, new team, new players, whatever. This is different this year. Last year doesn't matter. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it is new players, and I think you got to be really careful about, you know, how, how you proceed, right? Like, you know, every year is going to be different with respect to what the challenges are and how you're going to deal with your group and the changes you're making and, and everything that goes with it. But, you know, like, one of the things, and, 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 and I think that I haven't heard enough of this mentioned, I felt going into the playoffs and in the series against Boston, I thought I thought Toronto had a decided advantage in the middle of the ice with Matthews, Tavares, and Kadri, and, and and a decided advantage that they could use to to unsettle the Boston Bruins and and, and ultimately win the series. And then Nazem Kadri got suspended. Is that the coach's fault? Definitely not. Okay, Jake Gardner had a really bad back. Okay, Jake Gardner was probably based on, and I'm just using a loose number here, was probably at, at best 50% of his capabilities. So now you're looking at going and going, okay, so what do we have here? We have Jake Gardner. We know we're better with him than without him, but he's not at 100%. Travis Dermott had the bad shoulder, which we know, right? Zach well, Hyman, torn not, leg. Right. So, so, so the coach knows all this, right? And the coach is doing So how, 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 does, how does the coach, how does Mike Babcock get out coached? when he's dealing with the, the absence of, of, of what was a big advantage for the Toronto Maple Leafs, two injured defensemen, and then we knew, well, Hyman got hurt, what, game six? Was it game six he got hurt? I think it was either five or six, yeah. Yeah, it was later in the series. And now you're trying to – and they still won seven games with him, right? So, you know, I'm not so quick to say that, like, he got out coached. I hear people, and the people say, well, he should have made adjustments. Well, what adjustments was he going to make? Like, when, when you lose – when you lose – players and you lose key pieces of, of, of what your game plan is and how you want to use them and how you want to take advantage of the other team. Well, what adjustments is he going to make? And you know what, like, like, you know what, like, I don't think that, that, that Mike or the coaching staff was, was, was sitting there saying it's not on us, but you know, I, like, I think that, you know, you go into a series, you go game seven. I think they have to examine what happened in game five, what happened or no, sorry, game six. They, they, they get home ice, they take home ice advantage, they lose it, they get it back, and they have a chance to close out the series at home, and they don't do it. Like, those are the areas where you got to start to go, okay, what did we do? How did we miss that? Because, you know, you start to look back and you start to say, okay, you know, these are areas where you want to close out a series and where you want to get to a point where you can say, we, we, we now know we can do it. And the more you don't do it, the more you hear about how you can't do it. And that's players and coaches. So, you know, I think there's, again, like I said, I think there's a lot to chew on there. But I think at the same time, you know, this isn't just one area of the team. Do I think that Mike has to, again, examine things? Yeah. But he didn't tell Cadre to go out and say get suspended for the rest of the series. No, it's true. He didn't. He didn't. And we all know Cadre had the red miss. And I think Cadre, unfortunately... Wrote his own ticket out of town after doing that for the second year in a row. Yeah, you make a great point. <clears throat> you know, but in having that, you know, if Kadri 
doesn't get suspended. Hyman doesn't blow his knee. You know, Dermott doesn't have the, the hurt shoulder. Jake Gardner's back is good. You know, and the Leafs go on. Then what is the conversation? It's completely different than it is right now. And, and you know, you're dealing in what ifs, but that's what you need to look at. Like you just said, if you have a fully healthy team, they had the lead on the Boston Bruins. They may have been able to close out that series if Nazem Kadri didn't get himself suspended. Because like we talked about earlier, with Kerfoot being the guy to come out after the big units on the power play, Nazem Kadri, I feel, is exponentially better than Kerfoot in the offensive side of the puck. And I do think he's a little bit better defensively as well. And that could be argued till the cows come home. But I do feel... Having Nazem Kadri behind Tavares and Matthews, even though Kadri had a down year last year, I think they would have won that series. Again, it's, it's a whole bunch of what ifs, but it changes the, the whole narrative. And if they got by Boston and they lost in the second round, then everybody was saying, okay, well, we beat Boston. We moved on. Now we can keep going. But it's because it was Boston yet again. I, and I really focus on that because of all the pain Leafs fans have felt at the hands of the Boston Bruins in Game 7s, it just hurts and stings that much more that they cannot let it go. And Well, and that's the passion of the fans, right? Yep, and I get it. 100%. And, and, and you know what? And that's, and that, and that's, what, that, that's what makes it so good. And you're right. You, you don't want to be dealing in, in, in ifs and, and, and what could have beens and what should have beens and whatnot. I'm just, I'm just trying to point out that, like, you know, and I, I love Nassim Kadri. I love the way I love what yep. he brings to a team. And I think he's gone to Colorado and given them exactly what, what, what can help that team. But, you know, I, I understand when you, when you say that, uh, uh, you know, he wrote his own ticket out of town because you, you do get to a point where you go, well, geez, you know, you know, once we can accept, twice it becomes hard. That being said, you know, they also ended up getting with Tyson Berry. They had, they've never had a player like Tyson Berry. We started this conversation by talking about Tyson Berry. And, and I think that a, a real key to this team's success is Tyson Berry playing at the level that we know he can play at. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's important for the coaches to try to find a way and to get him into situations where he can really start to build his game and, and, and get it. He's never played in the Eastern Conference. He, he's played in the Western Conference. He doesn't, you know, who he's played against, you know, getting used to all the players that he's playing against. He, he doesn't have a familiarity with them. So how do you how, how do you work with him to, to help him not only be productive in his game, but get up to speed on the players and, 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 and the type of teams he's playing against? Now, I think Tyson can do it, but, but it just goes to that point. And, you know, we'll, you know as you move along, you know, there's lots of areas for this team to improve upon. And I don't think that they're sitting in a spot where you look at them and go, well, geez, they lack a lot of things. Like, I mean, when you look at certain teams, when you look at the Edmonton Oilers, you know, they're trying to move their team forward. And, and they basically they have, they have two great players in McDavid and Dreisaitl, Ryan Nugent Hopkins and then James Neal, who's doing pretty well. Well, guess what? They don't have enough behind them. Whereas you can't say that about the Toronto Maple Leafs. So, you know, you get your game in order. Get certain uh, uh, areas of, of your team solidified and then move ahead. But if they don't, like, and I know I get lots of, I get lots of flack on this, they're going to be in a fight for their playoff lives. Well, you know what? You shouldn't catch the flack for it. And I went back after we exchanged you know, tweets the other, a couple weeks ago, and I looked at what you're talking about. And one thing that so many people overlooked last year is Montreal finished with, what, 96 points? I think it was only four points back of the Maple Leafs? 
Yeah, you know, right. so you flip that on its head and Toronto loses those games and it ends up being Montreal where Toronto is. You know, it's that it's that close. It's not as far off as everybody thinks it is. It's great to get 100-point seasons. It's great to get all these accolades. But when you look at the Eastern Conference and how much every team in the East has improved, you know, you, you we all thought the Devils would be a lot better than they are right now. But you look at teams like Florida when it got Bobrovsky. Uh, the Rangers could definitely make some noise with Lundqvist at any point in time. But it's just that close. With Montreal being at 96, right on the Toronto Maple Leafs' heels, you're right, they could be battling. And if they sputter this way for the rest of the year, there are going to be changes. And I heard um, someone else say that, you know, 20 games in, it was on the radio, I forget who said it, but 20 games in, if the Leafs are still having these kind of troubles, there will be player movement for the Maple Leafs. So I don't know what that means or, or what's in the pipeline or what the thought process is there. But I'm thinking... You need to have your full complement of players, be Tavares, be Hyman, Dermott, and get everybody playing where they're supposed to be before you can make any decisions on coach, before you make any decisions on moving personnel, and just see where all the cards fall. I mean, not to say that those two players and Hyman and Dermott are the glue that makes everything go, but a player like John Tavares, that is a big omission out of your lineup. No, no question. And again, you want your full complement of players, and I think that that's always fair. You know, one thing I will add to this, Toronto had 100 points, Carolina had 99, and Columbus had 98. Yeah. Like, we're, we're not talking about a team that had 112 points and was comfortably in the playoffs last year. They weren't. Nope. And if you take away what they did through the first two months of the season, it wasn't really that, that great what they did. And... You know, and when you look at their, like, you know, what their winning percent, what their points percentage has been in the last 58 games, it's it, it just screams average team. And it screams non-playoffs. So, again, do they have talent? Do they have ability uh, to, to be better? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any question that they do. But you can't keep talking about what they have. You know, it's all good they, on paper. Yeah, they're in a position where they gotta they gotta show it. And and again, like I, like I can be as forgiving as anybody, but when when you start to look at trends and you start to look at patterns of play, tell you what they got some areas that they gotta really address, and they and they gotta address them in a significant way. Because if they don't, we're gonna continue continuously talk about yeah, but you know what, like you, you know, like Hyman's only been back for ten games and he's missed, and Dermot's just getting his feet wet. Well, now you're 35 games into a season. And now, you, and now where are you at? <laughs> you can always find an excuse. It's always been said. You, you can, can always find so an excuse right. if you want one. Yeah. Well, I was loud. Like, I mean, even after the game Saturday night. I mean, I mean, if it wasn't for Michael Hutchison, that game might have been 5 nothing after the first period. Oh, he, 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 gave, he kept him in it. 100%. Yeah. Mike Riley makes an unbelievable bonehead play by Montreal that allows Muzzin to, to get a goal. And then they score on the power play. And... You know, and, and then they get schooled again through the rest of the game. And I was I was shocked at the end of the game when Mike said, well, we were right there. Like, see, to me, you were never right there. You, you fell behind. You were badly outplayed. The goaltender kept you in. Montreal made a massive blunder to, to let you score late in the first period. You get a power play goal. You're kind of level. And you think you're right there? They were never right there in that game, in my view. They were always behind. And ultimately, they got they, the, the, the score reflected that. But if they think that they're close playing that way, then they – and I don't think – Mike's a pretty 
Mike's not pretty. Mike's a realistic guy. I don't think I, I think that that was more of a comment for the media. But you know, better be careful because even at two two, they were not in that game in my view. Well, my co-host who couldn't be here tonight, he's out. He's calling an OJHL game actually. Um, he had said, you know, Mike Babcock is doing what a good coach does, and that is shield his team from the negativity. By coming out and saying those comments, he's being that shield right now because things are not good in that locker room. Obviously, we see and you see it fans, you see everybody, everybody's saying they want more of the squad. So he's being that safety net right now for the team and, and basically being the good coach and taking it on the chin. You know, we're right there or, you know, yeah. it's yeah. on me or, you know, if I can't get them going, we've got to figure it out. You know, it's all those things. And then you have Austin Matthews, and I give him credit for this coming out and saying, you know, sometimes you have to yell at family. Sometimes you have to figure it out amongst each other and you, you got to fight it out, you know. And those are things sometimes that help you bond or sometimes it becomes divisive. I think with this squad and how close they are, you look at how close Matthews, Riley, and Anderson are and Martyr to the lesser extent. You know, there, there's little clicks, but it's the guys that are important that seem to be, you know, buddy-buddy. So if they can figure it out, like like Matthew said, it's like a family if the family can figure it out, I think this team can do really well. It's just figuring it out and getting there. You know, like you said, the talent's there. And we both said it's on paper. It looks great. But how do you get from the paper to the on-ice product to make it that way? And I just don't know where they go. I don't know how they do it. And everybody right now, like you just said, is hanging their hat on the fact, well, Hyman and Derwin are going to come back. And Tavares is going to need a little time to get back up to speed because his finger... And that's going to be the excuse until 35 games in the season, like you said. Then what happens? Then what do you do? Then you're maybe too far out of it to to even make a chase. And you've gone and yeah, sold your first not. round pick. You hope not. But, but again, that's again that that's a challenge of the regular season. It's uh, you know, and, and then you you talk about the uh, exchanges amongst the players and and the back and forth and you know the. The friction that occurs, and I, like I said about the coach and GM, it's it's healthy. It's healthy. You talk it out. It's no different than any relationship. And you know, everybody's going to have problems. Successful people, successful groups, successful teams find solutions to the problems, and that's what that's what the Leafs have to do. Listen, their problems aren't fatal, but and I say this all the time: problems that go away by themselves come back by themselves. So you better deal with the problems. That is true. Well, we've talked a lot about on what the Leafs need to do to improve. A couple of things I wanted to ask you about before we shift gears for a moment away from the Maple Leafs. The talk of Jake Muzzin, everybody wants this guy re-signed. He's playing with the physical edge. He's, you know, shutting guys down. Now he's obviously driving the play and scoring a couple of goals and endearing himself to Leafs Nation. Is this a player the Maple Leafs should prioritize or... Do you continue to wait to see how Dermot, Barry, and Muzzin all progress through this year because they all need money coming out at the end of this year? What are your thoughts on Muzzin, and what do you do? Well, I think Muzzin's a unique player. I don't think they have players like him. I think that he adds a lot to their group. I mean, I think if if you if you if you have a if you have a a, a really good uh, reasonable expectation of 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 what. Uh, he's worth and how, and how valuable he is to your team, and he has one that's that, that's likewise. I, I mean, I think you, you you find a way 
to, to to try to keep them because players like that are are, are unique, and I think they add to the group. So, but you're not going to have money for everybody. So that's just the, the, that's just the nature of the salary cap. That's the nature of the business. So, you know, but. When, when, to me, when you have unique players, players that add and, and give you different elements into your lineup that, that you don't have in abundance, the, the, those are players you have to prioritize. And that's why I would prioritize Jake Muzzin. Definitely. I 100% agree with you. I want Jake Muzzin on the squad just for some of the things he brings that other guys don't. And I well, really like the way, like I said, the physical aspect with him is something that is lacking amongst the Leafs D most nights. And he can offer that up sometimes. Sometimes it makes them get out of position, but at the same time, if you can spark your team with a big hit and get the boys all riled up, sometimes that's a little juice and jam that you need in a game. If it's going sluggish, it's going slow. That can turn the mode just a little bit. The other player I want to ask you about is the import of Ilya Soup Mikheyev. This guy right now, as we speak, is tied for rookie lead in points. And who knows what he'll do throughout the season if he'll peter off, but He's really impressed me. I'm wondering what your assessment is of this guy. And obviously, we all had the same kind of notion. Another player coming over from overseas. We've seen the Lindholms. Or, um, what's his name? Uh, it's escaping me. Um, but you know what I mean. We, we bring over these European talents. And some of them don't pan out. I'm wondering what you think of, of uh, Mikheyev. And obviously, they're looking for more like him. So, what are your thoughts on this guy who's the, tied for the rookie lead right now? Well, you, you know, I always believe, you know, you got a seven-round draft, and you want to have so many cracks at the, at, at the draft. So, you know, you're trying to look at other areas to add to your group and add to your team. I never feel that it's a negative to sign a European player. Uh, you know what? You know, good players and you, that have been good in Europe, and you start to assess and you start to say, well, well let's give them a chance here. And, and you do that. Now, I, and and if, if, if they make it great, if they don't, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Nothing ventured, nothing gained in my view. Now, you know, the, 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 there's a big difference between players. And it's not just about points or performing. The European game is a much slower game. And, you know, and, and because it's played on the bigger ice, you, you don't attack into the middle as much. The game's played more on the outside. So, you know, that type of game, which is hard driving in the NHL, which is quick in the middle of the ice, defending in the middle of the ice, attacking in the middle of the ice, it's, it's imperative to have the success in the NHL. Now, watching Ilya Mikheyev in the, in, in the KHL, he, he had those elements. I felt that Ilya Mikheyev, because of the way he played and the way he played in the KHL, really good hands, good skater, attacking in the middle of the ice, make plays around the net and into those hard areas, I thought that he had a really good chance to be a good, solid player because because of the way he played. When you're asking 25 and 26 year old players like a Par Lindholm to come over, they they gotta they gotta change their style of play. That's the that's the hardest thing for them. They gotta change their style of play because they gotta be quicker, they gotta be harder, they gotta they, they gotta be what I call inside hockey. You gotta really be into those into those critical areas. And it's really hard for them to change that, and most of them can't do it. Most of them can't do it. And, you know, but Mikheyev, watching him over there, he was able to do it. And so I'm not surprised that he's having success. So, you know, and, and, and that's a good one. But everybody's looking for these types of players. Everybody, I mean, there was a lot. I mean, I don't know what there was. I don't know how many teams were in on Mikheyev. But, you know, if you're paying attention, 
then you're 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 looking at a player that you think could be pretty good. But you, you know, this idea that every player you're going to sign, very few of them are going to make it. But you you go and you try to see uh, what you can do, and if the player wants to take advantage of the opportunity in terms of coming over, then great, sign them. And if it doesn't work out, you move on. Yeah, no, I always looked at it. I take the uh, the Brian Burke uh, statement. You know, it's a free wallet. You know, you don't know what you're oh, going to find yes. inside, but you, you may find a little bit of riches. And right now with Mikheyev, it looks like they found a little bit of riches in a guy who has size and speed. The only thing that I've wondered with bringing over players like this, especially with a guy like Mikheyev, it's a different style of game. It's more grinding. It's a smaller ice surface. I'm wondering towards the end of the season, will this player peter off performance-wise? Not just scoring, but just energy level. It's a different kind of game, different kind of grind. Or, you know, these are finely tuned athletes. Do you go with that argument that he should be just fine? I, I think that he might slow down towards the end of the year and tired and uh, might be a factor for him. There's an adjustment period. And, you know, what you can tell the players all you want that it's going to be hard and they can train. But in, until they go through it, and it's and it's not just physical, it's also mental. It's also the, oh, geez, you know, it's my third game in four nights. I'm at game 57. You know what? Like, oh, boy, this is hard, right? And, and, then, and then, you know, ha. You might only be at 75%, but it's, it's about understanding how, how do I get 100% out of my 75% that I have tonight? Because if you think that every player is at 100% every night, I mean, that's just delusional. But what, what, what the good players do and the players that, uh, you know, through their experiences, they understand how to get 100% out of the 75% they have that night. And, and, and but, but until the players go through it, you don't know. But, you know, bottom line is, they play lots of games. He played a style of game that, to me, translated to the NHL. Now he's got to go through the next parts of it is understanding the demands and the rigors and, and the challenges. And you know what? Maybe he'll maybe he'll fall off to, to a certain degree. Maybe he won't. But, you know, I think one of the benefits for him is that he is a mature person in terms of being 25 years of age. So, therefore, you know, like, you know, he's, he's, he's got the, the physical maturity to back him up. No, definitely. Well, I want to switch gears and move a little bit away from the Maple Leafs. Stay in the NHL for just a second. There's a lot of talk right now around some players that are having slow starts with their either new teams or teams that they're with and maybe leaving. Um, I'll give you three names. Talk about them quickly. Um, P.K. Subban with the New Jersey Devils doesn't seem right off the hop right now. It doesn't seem like a fit. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on Subban and the Devils. This is one that was asked to me, so I thought I'd throw it in here. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, PK hasn't played very well for the Devils, and uh, you know, like he, he he got traded. I mean, the Devils were excited about having him. The the PK was excited about going there. You, you know, I, I I don't think it's about how the Devils are using him. I mean, I think one of the challenges for the Devils is that the goaltending has been pretty poor, and so you know that affects the rest of the team. But, you know, when you're when when you're when you've been a frontline player, and again, you're getting paid. You know, PK Subban's got to get his game in order, yeah. and right now it's not. So to me, you know, and and again, it's great to say, well, you say, well, who's going to take PK Subban? Who's going to take PK Subban nine million dollars in two more years after this year on his contract? So you know what? Like, you don't just get to say, oh, I'm checking out. I get to leave. You don't get to do that. So you better dig in and find a way to be better. No, that's one player for me. I've said since the beginning, it was going to be the goaltending that would do in New Jersey if they didn't address it. And right now, 
They haven't, and I'm just wondering where they would go to find someone. And maybe you look over to the Washington Capitals and say, hey, you look like you have something in Sam Snov. Holpe's a free agent at the end of the year. What would it cost to get Holpe off your roster into ours? I don't know if they would do that, the Washington Capitals, obviously. But that's what they need. They need a goaltender, and that might stabilize a lot more than just the goaltending position and help them out. But I don't know where they look or where they find one. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot available right now. Well, with the New Jersey Devils, if they want to look for a goaltender, they're going to have to do what Minnesota did a few years ago. Try to find uh, who, who, the, who, who, the, who the Devin Dubnik is out there. And, <laughs> and, and and figure out, you know, okay, this player, you know, is, is pretty good. You know what, he, he might not cost us as much. But this is what we got to do. That, that that to me is is what they got to do because unless you're going to massively overpay for a Brayton Holtby, you're not getting them. That's true. That I, I agree with you 100. percent I just think that was one suggestion, obviously, with a player coming oh, yeah, no. to to a UFA. Right? It, it, it makes sense for if a team is going to put their stock in a guy like Samsonov, and maybe that's your future. And of course, you have Phoenix Copley behind him. Um, those might be your two horses you run with. And then you get something. Obviously, it would be an overpayment, but right now New Jersey might be in that position where they have a player like Taylor Hall that they're trying to keep around the stable. And that's another piece you have to worry about. And that's the next guy is going to ask. With Taylor Hall, if the season doesn't turn around, would you see a team like New Jersey moving on from him? Not really moving on, but trying to recoup something for him before he walks away because he may want to go somewhere where he has a better chance, or he feels he has a better chance. I don't think the New Jersey Devils are, are anywhere close to being a contender, and I don't care even if their goaltending is any good. They got they got a they got a twenty year old centerman and, a, and an eighteen year old centerman. And go through the league, and you know what? Look look at the teams that had eighteen year old centermen and nineteen year old centermen and twenty year old centermen that, that didn't have a good team around them. Good, and we're talking about McDavid, and we're talking about Jack Eichel. And we're talking about Barkoff, and we're talking about really good players. And guess what? Their teams are nowhere. Yep. Because they're no good. The teams aren't good enough. And the Devils' team isn't good enough. But you know what? Let's have this conversation in 18 months. So, you know, when they – their defense. They got two they got, they, they got two players playing that have been playing in their lineup that, that, that are marginal NHL players on the blue line. They got P.K. Subban's not playing great. So you put all this together. Listen, I've, I think Taylor Hall's a really good player. And I've been, but but some of the comments Taylor Hall's made, he's made, talking about John Tavares and everything. Pfft, I'm moving him, not keeping him, moving along. All right, well that's a pretty easy one. Um, the last guy I want to ask about is uh, we all know what happened last year in Dallas. You know where the team got called out. Jamie Ben has not had a good start to this season. I know we are extremely early. Dallas fans are going to jump on this one, but. Jamie Benn seems like a player who may benefit from a change of scenery. I'm wondering if Dallas, if things don't change, start to make moves, and if Jamie Benn would be a player they would look to move on from. And a team that may be looking to grab a player like him, maybe the Montreal Canadiens. Okay, well, I mean, what's he got? He's got, uh, after this year, what's he got? Five more years at $9.5 million? I mean, that's, that's the challenge in the salary cap world. You know, would, would there be teams that would look at, at Jamie Benn and say, yeah, yeah, I'd be interested in him? Yeah, there is. Absolutely there is. And, but when you're starting to look and, and, and salary cap and, and dollars dollars paid, you know, the, the, those are big things. So I, I, I would see it as, as a potential. 
if if he had another year or two left on his contract. Five years after this year, ooh, I don't see. I don't. I mean, here's how you move Jamie Ben if you want to move him, and you think it is. You're going to have to take back a, a contract that's that's very similar, or contracts that add up to that, because there just isn't the there isn't the uh, room or the flexibility within the league and within the teams to be able to make those types of moves. There just isn't. No, definitely. I'm just thinking purely, you know, with Dallas struggling, you try to move something, but you're you're right. I have five years left on his deal. But I look at Montreal with the cap space that they have, and that's the only fit that I see being out there right now to move a player like Ben. And they could use someone like him of his size, his stature on that team. But you're right. Moving someone in the salary cap era, they'd have to move contracts back. And I don't know if Dallas is ready to really strip it down bare bones and say, you know what, we're going to do that. You know, Taylor or Tyler Sagan, you look at other players in the squad, you know, what are you saying to them if you do move on from a guy like Ben? Um, just purely wondering, like, with Dallas sputtering, but their yeah, team... No, you're right. I mean, but it's a legitimate question. It's no, a yeah. legitimate question. But, 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 but the reality is, is that, you, you know, and you, and you can look at another team, but, like, Montreal, in two years' time, might have a whole new series of salary cap issues. True. You know, in terms of where their players, you know, entry-level players, and, and players that are going to need new contracts coming up. Like, you know, where do they go? So you know, it's not just it's not just about today to have salary cap room. You, you, you gotta you gotta extend it out, and you gotta be looking and going, okay, where are we gonna be at now? And and, and they got a really good group of young players in there. Yeah. So you know, how do they manage it and everything? And like again, like I'm not saying that people aren't gonna be interested in Jamie Ben, but it becomes a difficult difficult uh, exchange to make because of the because of the dollars being paid out for for a long term. No, you are 100% correct. Now, just to speak on the Montreal Canadiens with all of their prospects and everything they have coming up, what do you see out of that squad for this season? Obviously, you have, you rely heavily on Carey Price, and you rely heavily on Shea Weber, and you're looking for, again, replicated career years out of guys like Gallagher and Domi. I'm wondering, does does that team make that push? We talked about how close they were to the Leafs and almost making the playoffs. Do you see them taking that next step with this group? Guys like Suzuki and Paling and uh, everyone coming together and making that next push for the Montreal Canadiens. I, I think they're extremely well positioned with their prospect base. I think they have positions covered off very nicely. I don't think it's, uh, you know, in terms of being a, a top contender, I don't see that happening uh, this year. But I think they're they're well positioned to move forward with with the prospect group and, and players at key positions. I think they're a playoff team. I think Montreal's a playoff team. I, I, I like the way Claude Julien has worked with this team. Uh, I think that you know we talk about career years, but you don't need career years. What you need is is players to be in a band of consistent performance. So you, you know you don't want like everybody says, oh, he had a career year. Okay, that's great. Well. If a player only falls off by six points, you know, why did he have a career year? Maybe everything went his way. And, I mean, I mean, we can talk about John Tavares. John Tavares had 47 goals last year. Yep. Okay, that was a career high. He, he, he went almost 25% improvement at, at a time of his career where 25% improvements don't happen. So if John Tavares only has 40 goals this year, do we say that, like, he, he didn't have a good year? No. Like, I, you got to be within a band of yep. performance. As long as those players stay within that band of performance, I'm fine with it. I think we get too caught up, oh, career year this, career year that. 
the band of performance is a range. And so I see that Gallagher will stay in that range. I see that you know, Domi will stay in that range. And, and, and then you and then other players are going to improve. Like you, you have to think that Kotkin Emmy is going to get a little bit better. And, you know, you start to look at, you, you know, Victor Mete, who I thought got a lot better in the second half of the year last season. You know, he looks like he's taking steps forward. So it's it's not about who had a career year last year. It's about where's your team moving forward to. And I, I think it's a good team. And I, I think it's a team that can qualify for the playoffs. No, definitely. Even being a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs myself, I always like it better when Canadian teams are making the playoffs and making strides to get back to that because it makes it much more exciting, especially games like Saturday night when they play each other because it's meaningful hockey and it's fun to watch, especially when both teams are good. It's never good when one side's better than the other and it's kind of a drumming because then you hear it not only from the fans, but it just makes the game a little less exciting. No question. The last thing I want to talk to you about, Craig, is we do a lot of work with the OJHL on this podcast, and we deal with the Markham Royals and teams in that league. I'm wondering, from your perspective, it's not a league that is heavily covered and talked about, but there are players, prominent players, that go through that league. They may play a few games there and then move on, but this league is a great development league. I'm wondering, from your experience, why is the OJHL not talked about as much as some of the other leagues. Like, I, like, I mean, I guess what I'd have to ask is what leagues? Uh, well, you look at the, so the OJHL, I mean, the SDHL gets a little bit more coverage. Um, you look at the, the OHL, you look at the Q. Obviously, they have great prospect players that are, you know, not seeking, I guess, university eligibility. But I'm just wondering why it's not on the same tier as those. You know, it's the same kind of age band of players and a lot of good players like, you know, Zach Hyman. You look at um, oh, I can't, Edmonton there, the goaltender. Uh, Cam Talbot, who now plays for the Calgary Flames. Um, you know, Connor McDavid played there for a moment. Mitch Marner played in the OJHL. I'm just wondering why it doesn't get spoken enough or even just brought up in more conversations. If you're listening to, you know, I guess any show that's talking about junior hockey, they, they focus more on the the OHL and the QGM and they don't really talk about those leagues unless there's one player in particular, but it's never about the team. It's about that one player. Well, I mean, the OHL and the QMJHL and the Western Hockey League are better leagues. They, 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 have, a, they have a better quality of a uh, player. They have a higher quality of player. They have more quality players. And it's just, it's just a much, much higher level of play. So, you know, you, you, you can never, you can never compare the OJHL to the Quebec League or the Ontario Hockey League or the Western Hockey League. Now, you point out that players, you know, use that path, you know, to go to the uh, to go to university because they've chosen to take a university path. So the OJHL provides that opportunity, and you know, you're going to see players, you know, get drafted out of there. But you know, it's a path where the players are saying, "This, you know, th- this is our direction, and this is the league we have to go through." Now, when you're going to the OHL and you're 16 years of age and you've been a top midget player, you're not ready to wait two years in a lot of cases to go uh, to, to, to the NCAA. And, you know, it's, a, it's players that are a little bit more late blooming or, you know, really feel that they have a direct uh, ambition to go to college hockey. And, and so that's where they take it. But there just isn't uh, the quality of player playing in the OJHL that there is in those other leagues. And, you know, there's, there's not going to be because it's just the nature of the tier of, uh, of, of, of player and, 
respect to the higher leagues. No, definitely. So that being said, you know, the OJHL, I will say for, for myself and anybody watching it, it, it is a great development league for players going on to college in the NCAA. Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering for, for your side of things, you know, the OJHL, if you look at the Markham Royals, and I'll say this as flat out, the attendance isn't great. What would you say, you know, to people for the OJHL? What would you say to someone if they ask you, hey, is this hockey that is worth watching? For me, I always tell people it's great hockey. You know, it's fast-paced. The guys like to play. It's the same. For me, it's it's watching great young players, and you never know who you might get a glimpse of that may be something down the line, like a Zach Hyman, you know, those kind of ilk of players. I'm wondering what you would say to someone if they were looking to watch the OJHL. What would you recommend them? Uh, well, here's what I would say. I, I, I would, it's a community-based league. So, so what you have is, is communities that get behind the, the, the teams. So players are playing in those communities, and yeah, you support it because it, it's in your community. I'll I, I share uh, uh, a story that I think that reflects that. During the 2004-2005 lockout in the NHL, I was down in the East Coast Hockey League, and uh, I was at a I was at a, a Fort Myers. I think it was Fort Myers. Fort Myers at the Everblades. They were playing a game, East Coast Hockey League, and it was a it was a Saturday night. And Scotty Bowman, who lived in Tampa Bay, was was down there, and we're watching the game. I don't know what the rink was. The rink probably held about fifty five hundred people, maybe six thousand people, and. The game was entertaining. The game had goals. The game had uh, a real competitive bent. Uh, the entertainment was great. The fans enjoyed it. They were able to, uh, you know, you know, cheer for their team, and, and it was great. Scotty Bowman turned to me. I don't know when it was. Sometime in the third period, he goes, "Craig, it's not the NHL, but in terms of everything you get in a hockey game, this game has had it all. And for this community, he goes, that's all you can ask for. You know what? They come here, they support it, and that's where you get behind it." And that's exactly what I would say about the OJHL and, and, and junior A hockey across the country. You know what? Like, you know what? You, you, you go to a place and, you know, the, the players are there. They're billeted. People care about it. But it's a community-based uh, It's a community-based program. And so that's where you, you get behind your team and you root for your community team and you way you go. I mean, one of the challenges for the OJHL that, that the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League doesn't have and the Alberta Junior Hockey League doesn't have, is that you're competing with Oshawa and Peterborough and the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Marlies and the Belleville Senators and the Ottawa Senators. Well, there's no NHL teams in Saskatchewan, right? And, the, and, and there's some junior, there's some Western Hockey League teams. But when, you're, when you live in Melfort and you live in North Battleford and you're in Weyburn, right, you're not competing with, with the teams in the Western Hockey League. Like, there's no teams in Saskatoon in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League. There's no teams in Regina in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League. So now you have you have that fan base to yourself. And that's why I mean it becomes community based. So that's what that's what you're getting. You're getting the flavor of community. People go in and watch. Now you might get lucky and say, Oh geez, this player he's going to the NHL or he's a top young player and, and that's great. But that's rare. And really you're you're getting behind the team because it's in your community and you want to support it. No, definitely. No, I wanted to ask you that, like you said, because we do work a little bit with the Markham Royals yeah, and the OJHL and covering it. So it's good to hear, you know, positive spins on, on the junior leagues as well that don't usually get the big eye on them. And, you know, you touched on some things that maybe I didn't draw on and think about, 
you know, and it gives me food for thought. So that's why I wanted to put it out there and ask. And it's a new perspective for me. Oh, good. Well, that's, 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 you know, that's, you just look at it and try to evaluate it. And you know what, but it's entertaining. And that's why I say to you about Scotty Bowman, I mean, we're at the Everblades game and it was entertaining. It had everything you'd want in a game. No, 100%. Well, Craig, I want to thank you very much for taking the time and coming on and talking to Leafs, especially during this, I'd say for most Leafs fans, a trying time. And it was good to talk those things out. I feel like it was therapeutic for me, and hopefully everyone listening will get a little bit of that as well. I, you know, you talked me off the ledge a little bit tonight, so I will, uh, I will give Babcock more leash and more of a chance in my own mind, and I hope others do as well. And obviously, I hope we ease off of the boys and let them mature a little bit more before we start uh, saying we should get rid of them and send them back to wherever they need to go. <laughs> well, well, that's true. I mean, you got to be careful about you know being rash and. You gotta be patient, and you know the hardest time to be patient is when things aren't going well. And but at the same time, and I and I've been very, very uh, consistent with this, and and emphatic. You know what? They have to find solutions. They, they cannot continue playing the same way, the same style, and expect it to, to change. It's because it, it's not going to. No, it doesn't. It doesn't bode well for success, especially if you don't switch it up. And like you said before about stagnating, you know, you don't want to do that either. So if teams are figuring you out this early in the season, then something needs to change to make sure that it doesn't keep happening that way. Exactly. Well, Craig, again, thank you so very much for jumping on our our little show here. And I look forward to talking to you down the line. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Not a problem, Craig. Thank you. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was the interview with Craig Button from TSN. That is what we've been waiting for. There's lots to digest there. Look forward to hearing your comments and everything about this episode. All right, guys, we will catch you next week.